Okay, so in 2015, I watched a Broadway musical. The name of it was Amazing Grace. I liked it so much that I watched it twice. I think I'm the only person who did that because the musical did not do well at all. It lasted only three months back in 2015. Uh, Amazing Grace is about the life story of John Newton, who, of course, wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. In this musical, Newton is portrayed as this conflicted son of a very successful slave trader. He's torn between following in the footsteps of his father or choosing instead to listen to his childhood sweetheart, Mary Catlett, who fights against slavery in England. So while he's trying to figure out which way to go, he is impressed. He is forced to join the British Navy. But then that, that ship gets defeated by a French warship, and John falls into the sea and ends up in Africa. While he's in Africa, that's when Newton becomes a slave trader. But later he's rescued, he returns to England, and there's a dramatic scene that while he's on the ship back to England, he survives a storm, and he has this vision of all the lives he's destroyed through slavery. So he comes to faith in Jesus. He vows that he's going to spend the rest of his life fighting against slavery. He happily marries Mary Catlett, and they band together as abolitionists. And this musical ends with the note that John Newton wrote hundreds of hymns, including the final song sung at the end, Amazing Grace. So the musical presents this wonderful story of redemption. We love stories like this. The conflicted man who fails to find his way, falls into sin and corruption, comes to his senses, partly in thanks to the persistence of a woman's love, spends the rest of his life fighting against this great injustice, and to top it all off, he writes the most famous hymn of all time. What a story. You can't make this stuff up. Except the story is made up. Here's what really happened. When John Newton became a Christian in 1748, he had yet to command a slave ship. He had yet to engage in the slave trade. It was after he professed faith in Jesus Christ that he became a slave trader. It was after his conversion that he joined the slave trade for six years. During that time, he wrote about his job as a slave trader. I was satisfied with it as the appointment Providence, which is another way of saying God, had marked out for me. He's saying, this is the path God has for me to be a slave trader. In fact, there was a gap of 10 years from Newton becoming a Christian to his first public criticism of slavery. And let's not sugarcoat what Newton did as a slave trader. He treated African men and women like animals, chained them, he caged them, oftentimes in their own excrement. He allowed them to be physically and sexually abused and saw many of them die from torture and disease. I think you can tell why that story, that true story, was not in the musical. See, we love these stories of redemption where there's a clean break between someone's sinful past and their new self, where now they live like much holier lives. But we know that life is usually messier and more complicated than the stories portrayed on Broadway or in Hollywood or in Korean dramas. So I want you to ponder this question. Was John Newton as much a child of God while he was captaining those slave ships as when he wrote all those wonderful hymns later on in his life? Ponder that question as we study, study our passage today. 
We're continuing our sermon series. It's called Jesus Says. We're looking at parables that Jesus taught us. So let's look at today's parable. This is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Hear now the word of God. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And, all, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Amen. The first thing we see in this passage is that Jesus makes a marked contrast between two characters. We have the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, many of us know that Jesus regularly gave the Pharisees a really difficult time. And because of that, when we think about the Pharisees, we tend to think all these negative thoughts about them. After all, Jesus called them hypocrites. He called them whitewashed tombs. He was very harsh in his criticisms of them. But we need to understand that when Jesus is telling the audience this parable, his audience had a very positive view of Pharisees. The Pharisees were a very highly regarded religious sect. There were about 3,000 of them at the time, a very select group. They were the upstanding citizens, the leaders in their communities. They were looked up to. They were admired. To be in the presence of one of them was an honor. If they were walking through the neighborhood, people would go out of their way to show them respect. And there would be the awestruck whispering and murmuring as when a dignitary rolls through town. They'd be like, oh, there's Johnny the Pharisee. And here will come the paparazzi and and the autograph requests. So when the Pharisee offers up this prayer in the story, and here it is again in verses 11 and 12, the people listening to Jesus are nodding along. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not a robber, evildoer, adulterer, or even like this tax collector. The people would be like, yeah, that's right. You are better than those people. Good on you. We applaud you. We want to be like you. You are rightfully respected. And then he says, I fast twice a week. Like, hello, we don't just have a Pharisee. We have a super Pharisee. You're like more amazing than I thought. Back then, many Pharisees fasted Once a week, this guy is doubling up. He's double the man. He's double the Pharisee than others. And finally, he gives a tenth of all that he's got. And along the lines of what I talked about last week, this statement is even stronger when we factor in the practices of that time. He's not just saying he gives a tenth of his earnings or salary. He's also giving a tenth of his complete assets. The Pharisee in the story is highly esteemed. He's outwardly very upright and inwardly very disciplined. He's like a pastor's dream. I'm sure Pastor Key, Pastor Bobby, and I would love to have a dozen or two dozen of that kind of person in our churches. If this Pharisee was at our church, he would post his morning devotional every day on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, and Talk. He'd give the biggest offering every Sunday. He'd serve the church as a member of worship team, productions, connections, hospitality, Mercy Kids, the prayer team, church ops, outreach, and stewardship. And of course, he'd also be a family group leader. This guy would do everything. By the way, those are all our ministries. Those are ways you can serve if you'd like, even during this time of pandemic. 
But as people are listening to Jesus, they would be in awe. They'd be like, wow, this guy, he's the man. This Pharisee might as well drop the mic after his prayer. His achievements are that good. And this is when Jesus introduces the second character. If the Pharisee was this highly renowned character who brought about admiration from all the people, the tax collector was at the far other end of the spectrum. During Jesus' time, the Jews were under the control of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would hire Jewish men whose job was to go and harass other Jewish people and basically take as much money as possible from them. And the tax collectors wouldn't just ask these people for what belonged to the government. They would also force people to pay more than that. And that more was what the tax collector kept. Tax collectors basically secured their own kickbacks. Tax collectors were the, fast, were the fat cats of their society. They were greedy, they were rich, they were corrupt. And they were traitors working in collaboration with an occupation government which the, deep, the Jewish people deeply resented. How many of us get angry today when we hear about people like that? People who use unethical and corrupt means to become wealthy. That was the case with John Newton, and that's the case with the tax collector in our parable. Tax collectors were despised. They were hated. If people saw a tax collector on one side of the street, they would cross over to the other side, even if it totally inconvenienced them. It would be a complete opposite of how they would treat a Pharisee. Tax collectors were so reviled by society that they were in their own unique class. You may remember this from last week. When Jesus is eating at Matthew's place, Matthew is a disciple and a former tax collector, the Pharisees say to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You notice how the tax collectors get their own category. It's like they're not just sinners, they're super sinners. They're as awful as can be. So while Jesus is telling this parable, he starts with the Pharisee, and the people are listening. You know, they're enjoying a good story. It's good times. The people are feeling Jesus' parable. They're, they're bopping along. But when Jesus mentions the tax collector, the air just goes out of the room. What was once happiness and good flow now becomes seething anger. Like, Jesus, why did you have to ruin the parable by mentioning that guy? We can tolerate a prostitute, an adulterer, but tax collector? Jesus, you ruined it. Scholars have stated it's like telling a story about a dignitary, a high-profile person that we all admire and respect, and then shifting and talking about a rapist or a serial killer. But I think it's even more severe than that. Most of us have not come into contact with that kind of criminal. These tax collectors were people that you would come into contact with. And when you saw them, when you were around them, the anger and nausea would bubble up inside of you. I want you to think right now of that person who if he or she walked into your home right now, you would feel the anger rise up within you. You would be repulsed. Is there anyone like that in your life? Maybe not. If that's the case, I want you to think about a type of person that you would want nothing to do with. A Trump supporter. President Trump himself. Someone who supports looting and burning down buildings. Someone who equates COVID to the flu. Have I mentioned all the sore spots? Okay. For you, that's the tax collector 
in this story. Focus your rage on that person as we continue. In verse 13, when Jesus tells of the tax collector's prayer, it's a very simple prayer. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There would have been two immediate reactions in the audience, and perhaps your reaction as well to your tax collector. Number one is, that's right, you a sinner. In fact, you worse than a sinner, you tax collector. And number two, no. No, no, you do not get mercy. You're the one who loses. You're the one who suffers the consequences and bears the whole weight of your actions. There is no room for mercy. It certainly would not have been what Jesus ends up saying in verse 14. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. This is the part where everyone drops their jaw in complete shock. And then that shock immediately becomes outrage and fury. The audience would not be happy. The Pharisee, he's the good guy. He's the one we all want to be like. The tax collector, he's the one that makes us want to puke. Just thinking about it makes us sick. And you're saying that Jesus, just because of a prayer of a few words, he's the one that comes off well in this story? What? How can that be? You see, this parable is not about prayer. It's not even about humility. Jesus tells this parable to answer one simple question. How does one become right with God? If you notice at the end of the parable, Jesus doesn't say, God the Father heard the tax collector's prayer, and it was good. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, the tax collector is the guy you should be like. Instead, Jesus uses a strong word. He says the tax collector went home justified. Justified means made right. So the tax collector, despite his highly immoral lifestyle, despite his status as most hated countrymen, he is made right with God. He is loved. He is declared righteous. It's a central doctrine of our faith that you and I are justified by faith alone. Faith all by itself. Not faith plus works, but faith alone. Now, many of you know that. Many of you have heard that. But I want to ask you today, do we really believe that? We sing songs like Your Grace is Enough or Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. But do we really believe that? Or is it just more in theory? We like the sound of being justified. We like the sound of being made right simply by believing in Jesus. But do we live it? Do we practice it? When Jesus reveals the ending to this parable, everyone is floored. Everyone is in great disbelief because this parable and its main lesson went completely against the religious ideas of that day. And I believe it still runs counter to how we want to live today, even as modern Christians. So let me give us a test to see if we truly believe in God's grace being enough for us, if we truly believe in amazing grace, both in theory and in practice. I'm going to give you a couple hypotheticals building off of our parable today. And I want to give proper citation. This is from my main man, Robert Farrar Capon, my favorite author. He was a late, he's a late brilliant uh, priest, a wonderful writer who was all about championing the grace of God. So here are his hypotheticals. Number one, let's say the tax collector, let's say we're back meeting at Palisades Park High School. This is post-pandemic. The tax collector saunters into the school, goes to our service, gets convicted during the worship, uh, prays, 
God have mercy on me, a sinner. And like Jesus says, he leaves service, he drives back home, and he is justified before God. Okay, cool. Let's say in another week, one Sunday later, he's going to come back again to the school and say that same prayer again. Now, what do you want to see happen in this guy's life in between those two Sunday prayers? Some of you are thinking, well, the tax collector should probably quit his job. Matthew, the tax collector, when he followed Jesus, he became a disciple. He quit his job. He wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Or at least this guy should have an existential crisis. He should think about his career. He should think about how to transition out of this lifestyle. Okay, maybe he has to keep his job. You know, he has to keep food on the table. He's got mouths to feed. Uh, or at least he should try to be a nicer tax collector. Don't skim as much off the top as he did before. No more kickbacks. No more ripping off people. The bottom line is that you and I would want to see some kind of reform, some kind of increased morality in his life, some semblance of proof that he's living more rightly before God. So Capon says, for this first scenario, right? imagine that the tax collector didn't change at all. He was still this evil, greedy trader. He kept praying, P-R-E-Y, not P-R-A-Y, praying upon poor people. He kept praying upon his own Jewish countrymen. He continued to live that fat cat lifestyle with no regard, no care for others. And then at the end of that week, he comes back here to the school with that stance of humility, beating his chest and asking God for mercy. Here's what Capon writes. I trust you see that on the basis of the parable as told, God will not mend his divine ways any more than the tax collector did his wicked ones. He will do this week exactly what he did last. God, in short, will send him down to his house justified. So I ask you, are you okay with that? You probably aren't. It's not fair. It's not right. There needs to be at least some change in his life. Well, that's the second scenario. Let's say he was a little better in between those two Sundays. Let's say the tax collector skimmed less. He started browsing LinkedIn and Indeed, trying to find a new line of work. He started, he started to treat people a little nicer. He began to pray, P-R-A-Y, more. He read the Bible a little bit. And then he goes back to our school, says the prayer again. How do you feel now? Do you feel better? What do we want God to do with him at this point? Remember, God was not impressed at all with the super Pharisees list. So even if the tax collector is a little better, even a lot better, his list is still going to fall way short of the Pharisees list. If we're honest, there's a big part of us that needs a tax collector to come for the second Sunday and maybe not be like the Pharisee, but at least live like the Pharisee a little bit more. It'd be nice if his second Sunday prayer was like this, God, have mercy on me, but I've been a little bit better this week. I've been a little bit more moral. I've kept your laws a little more. I've actually lived up more to this new standard. I emailed Pastor Key so that we can have lunch. I've taken at least one step closer toward God. Would that cut it? No. Why would God accept that prayer if he didn't accept the Pharisee's prayer? And some of you are like, well, the Pharisee was arrogant. He wasn't humble. But that doesn't make sense. It can't be a work that justifies us, even the work of humility. Here's the point. Even though in theory we like the ending of this parable, you and I still want to think that we have more in common with 
the Pharisee. We're upstanding citizens. We work hard. We follow God's laws as, as much as we can. We serve at church. We're generally good people with concern for others. And that should give us some wiggle room with God. We should be a little bit more in with God. Okay, okay, we're justified by grace alone. God's grace is enough. But my works count for a little something, something. Let me give you a few examples of how we're like the Pharisee. We tend to think like this. I deserve better in life. God, you should answer my prayer requests more often, whether it's for a good job and career, whether it's to get married, to get pregnant, because God, I've been good. I've been faithful. I've gone to church. I've reached a certain moral standard. That's like the Pharisee. Or we see someone fail morally. That's pretty much every day in the news today. And we get horrified and we immediately think, I would never do that. We look at John Newton's life. We can't believe that someone would come to Jesus and they'd be a slave trader for six years. So we judge and think to ourselves, that person can't possibly be a Christian. And can I just say, we need to be very careful with that. There are some of you, you immediately judge people, whether it's politicians, celebrities, and we think that because of something they say or something they stand for, they can't be a true Christian. And I want to tell you right now, you're being a Pharisee. You got to watch out. You don't know that person's true standing before God. We don't. One more way we act like a Pharisee, our disposition, the way that we feel spiritually, depends on how good we think we've been recently. If we prayed a little bit, if we've read the Bible, we feel better about ourselves. If we've done some things for God, served, gone to church, we're more right with God. If we don't, we feel guilty and we feel less right with God. That's also like the Pharisee. Some of you who are watching right now, this has been a cumulative thing for you. You're still not feeling like you're right with God because of things you did a long time ago. So, you know, you may know you're saved, hopefully, and you walk with God, but you still have this nagging feeling that something is wrong with you spiritually. But that is like the Pharisee. These are all ways in which we act like the Pharisee in this parable. We act like the Pharisee when we place some level of confidence in our righteousness, or we lack confidence because we feel like we come up short. Either way, we act like the Pharisee. Here's another way to look at it. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7. It's a famous passage during a Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now when God judges us, that comes in different ways, but it's not usually via thunderbolts and lightning. Right? It's not like we sin and God shoots lasers from his eyes and cuts us down to size. God's judgments are usually more simple. Okay, Many times, it's just natural consequences. For example, a man cheats on his wife and is caught. The natural consequence in judgment is a loss of trust, a loss of intimacy, maybe the end of the marriage, and all the pain and suffering that comes with that. Another example, when someone chases after the idol of money and success, the natural consequence many times, as rich people and Hollywood celebrities will tell you, is emptiness. They find out later in life those things did not make them happy. That's the judgment. So when Jesus says, do not judge, or you too will be judged, and the measure you use will be measured for you, what he's saying is, when you judge others, when you look down on others for certain things that they do, because they fall short of a standard, that same measure is applied to you. And because none of us are perfect, and all of us sin, 
you become crushed by the weight of those standards you've placed upon others. You condemn others, later you realize you've also fallen short, so you have to feel condemned. That's the judgment. There's no other judgment needed. We become miserable when we live like the Pharisee in this parable. Here's what Capon writes about our parable. The point of the parable is that they, both the Pharisee and the tax collector, are both dead. And their only hope is someone who can raise the dead. It's only when when we realize that we're dead, that we're hopeless, that there's no good deeds we can hang on to. It's only in that place where we realize we are the tax collectors. We are the ones with absolutely nothing to offer God. But then we also realize that's because we were so wicked and so hopeless and flat out dead that Jesus had to die for us. We were in desperate need of grace, and through the cross, we got it. When we see that, when we get to that place, that's a good place to be. When you and I grasp that we're the tax collectors, the ones who did not deserve grace but received it, our hearts are transformed. Our lives are transformed. The way we think about life, the way we treat others, the the, the things we place our value in, all of that is transformed. Let me give us a few examples. We confess our sins freely. We don't hide behind our sins and our failures. In fact, we're excited to repent before God because we know there's forgiveness and unconditional love on the other side. We're less quick to justify ourselves. We don't have to make ourselves look good in front of others. We don't have to shift the blame when we're blamed, even when we're unfairly blamed, because we know that we've already been right. We've already been made right before a God who loves us. And his is the only opinion that matters. We become more apologetic and less defensive. We can handle criticism and we become less obsessed with our performance in all arenas of our lives. We're freed up to love others. And it's okay when people disappoint us. It's okay when people let us down because we understand that we're all sinners. We're all tax collectors. So our relationships are marked by grace and forgiveness and giving each other the benefit of the doubt. And yes, We don't give up on people as easily. We don't write people off, no matter what they believe, no matter how they live. We understand there might be some John Newtons among us, people who are far from being a finished product. So we're patient with them as God has been patient with us. The best transformation that takes place is that you and I can simply rest. We can rest knowing that we are safe, we are loved, we are accepted, We are justified today, tomorrow, forevermore, no matter how well or poorly we perform. Rest is hard work, isn't it? Most of us would rather do something or try to gain our own justification, but that runs completely counter to the good news of the gospel of God's grace. I call this sermon the tax collector's joy because if you understand, if you truly believe that you are the tax collector in this parable, you have discovered the true and only pathway to everlasting joy in your life. The only thing that disqualifies us from the grace of God is not admitting our need for it. It's identifying with the Pharisee instead and choosing to live accordingly to those impossible-to-reach standards. But when we admit, just like the tax collector, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. That is true 
refreshment. That is true joy. That is true freedom in Jesus Christ. There's a historical novel titled Silence, uh, which Martin Scorsese made into a movie a few years ago. And it takes place during a time when the Japanese government persecuted Christians in the 17th century. There's a tragic figure in the movie named Kichijiro. Kichijiro is a man who likes to drink. He really likes his sake. Uh, he's a Christian. But during this time of persecution, uh, he renounces his faith. What the Japanese government did was they forced Christians to step on something called a fumi. It's a portrait of Jesus. If you didn't step on the fumi, you would be tortured and perhaps killed. So Kichijiro is one who steps on the fumi to avoid that fate. Therefore, other Christians who did not step on the fumi look down upon him. But he keeps trying to be a good person. So when these two Portuguese priests come along, played by Adam Driver and Andrew Garfield, he helps them. He takes care of them. He brings them to the village. He comes before one of the priests named Rodriguez and says, Father, I must confess my sins. So these, you know, these are practicing Catholics. That's how you receive forgiveness, by coming before a priest. But soon enough, Kichijiro's true colors show again. He actually sells out those two, two priests to the government for a few silver coins, just like Judas did. Even after that, he finds Rodriguez. He comes before him and says, Father, I must confess my sins. Shortly after that, we see another scene where Kichijiro steps on the fumi again. He renounces his faith. Later on, we see him run naked out of a prisoner camp. Still later on, he finds Rodriguez again, and he says, Father, I must confess my sins. Kichijiro functions as a form of comic relief. Uh, while we were watching the movie in the theater, I remember people were scoffing when he betrayed his faith, groaning when he sold out other Christians, and laughing every time he asked for forgiveness. Kichijiro is my favorite character in that movie. Uh, the Catholic way of confession aside, he understood that in Christ, there is always forgiveness available. There is always grace available, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you've been. That because of what Christ has done, we can always get a fresh start in God. I believe that's a word for some of you today. Because of God's grace, you can always start anew. You always get a fresh start. And it's okay. Like the tax collector who comes every Sunday and says, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. You and I can get fresh start after fresh start after fresh start in Jesus. Check this out. Many of you know 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Some of you have seen this verse so many times, but have you actually thought about what this verse is saying? 1 John 1, 9 should say this. If we confess our sins, God is kind and merciful and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If you and I are guilty of a crime, the last thing we should want is for the judge assigned to our case to be faithful and just because that means we should get punished. So why does the Apostle John choose these two adjectives? He chooses faithful and just because he's highlighting the point that if you and I are in Jesus Christ and we believe that Jesus died for us and we admit our need for his grace, then it will be unfaithful it will be unjust for God to not forgive us. Because Jesus died on the cross and it's a finished work, that means there's always grace. That means forgiveness is always freely available for you and me. You see, grace 
is oxygen. Uh, Chongwei and I went hiking this past Monday at Rampo Mountain State Forest, and she enjoys hiking in that kind of setting because of the air. Right? We all know there's a marked difference between the air we breathe, let's say in New York City, right, and the air we breathe within a forest. So we just love to breathe in the air. Over and over, we just feel more alive, you know, just so delightful. I believe that's the offer God places before you and me. You can breathe in that New York City air that gets you blue, that gets you tired, the lack of oxygen that causes rust in your heart and makes you cynical. You can choose the ways of the Pharisee and decide that you and everyone else has to meet certain standards. Or you can choose the air in the forest. This is the air that when you breathe it in, it's really good. It's not polluted. It doesn't make you tired. It doesn't wear you out. And the best part is you can just breathe it in all day and all night. That supply of oxygen, that supply of God's grace never ends. It is inexhaustible. That's the way of the tax collector, admitting you and I are dead, admitting our great need for God's grace and forgiveness. And then when we receive it, we... <sighs> Life joy, and peace. I do want to stress, this is exactly what people need in our country today. In our country today, we are in dangerously a short supply of grace. I believe our nation is in a downward spiral of sin. Here's what I mean. Sin always leads to more sin. That's a clear biblical principle. It's true to our life experiences. If I sin against you, what usually happens? You sin against me, usually stronger. If I punch you, what's going to happen? You're going to punch me back harder. So you get your revenge, and then what? Do I change? Do I repent? No, I double down on my sin. I defend my sin. Now I have more reason to blame you for my sin, which conversely makes you dig deeper and blame me further and perhaps strike again. And this cycle is repeating. There is no end in sight. Just more sin, more anger, more violence, more blaming. Just apply that framework to any big news story out there today. It's just a cycle of sin with no room for forgiveness. Many of us, regardless of what we believe politically, we're becoming much more like the Pharisee because we view the other side as tax collectors. The people who do not agree with us, we see them as repugnant. They deserve all the judgment they can get which again only leads to that side doubling down, justifying their own behavior and beliefs, more unrest and more sin. My brothers and sisters, I want to implore you that there is only one solution, grace. It starts with you and me realizing how sinful we are, how we deserve complete judgment, how we are the tax collectors, and then basking in God's grace, receiving and enjoying God's forgiveness, God's kindness, savoring his completely undeserved mercy given to us. And those who know, those who truly know that they are the recipients of the most amazing gift called grace, they're also the ones who are more likely to dispense grace. They're the ones who are more likely to offer forgiveness, offer understanding, not be so quick to lash out and heap judgment upon others. Grace is the only way to break the downward spiral of sin. I believe as we get closer to the 2020 election, this downward spiral will continue to get worse and worse because there is no room for grace. So once again, I plead with all of you, 
offer that oxygen, offer that lifeline that people desperately need in these crazy times, offer grace. And finally, I want you to imagine, as I invite the worship team up, I want you to imagine with me what kind of church we would be if we all grasped that we're tax collectors, if we all admitted our need for God's grace and therefore received it, if we all realized that we were once dead, but now we are alive in Christ. Can you imagine the hilarity that would ensue? It was like, I was once dead, but now I'm alive. You too? You were once dead, but now you're alive? Ha! That is so amazing how blessed we truly are. I mean, I didn't belong here, and you didn't belong here, but God invited us in by sheer grace. That must mean anyone can belong here. And that means instead of sucking the oxygen out of the air, Instead, we'll always be looking to breathe grace afresh into each other's lungs. We will be a church full of oxygen, full of life, full of joy. There will be corporate awe of all that God has done for us. Corporate joy that would be infectious to anyone who would come join us for worship. We will be performing much-needed CPR for those around us. We will be that oasis that people need in this desert we call 2020. So in the Mercy Palisades Church, let's be that kind of church. Let's be a people that know that we're tax collectors, that know that we need to come before God and say, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And let's enjoy, let's breathe in, and then breathe out grace and share that joy, that precious joy, with all of those people around us. Let's pray. Let's spend a little bit of time in repentance. I'm sure there are ways that we live like the Pharisee. It could be that, you know, we believe our morality or the way that we follow Jesus uh, earns us more blessings. Maybe we've judged or looked down upon groups of people and thought we're better than them. They can't possibly be Christians. Have we beaten up ourselves because of things we've done in our past and therefore we don't believe that God's grace is truly enough? I want us to repent, just like the tax collector in this parable, and say, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. God, I confess I want to justify myself. I confess I freely look down on others. I confess I do think I'm better. Let's repent before the Lord. Let's ask God to help us to see our sin. And as you see it, pray and say, God, have mercy on me. God, forgive me. I'm a sinner. Let's pray together.